just for a Closer Walk podcast. My name is Joel Osmond, and I'm so privileged and honored to have you here for episode 22. Here we go. Well, we've been working through for the past several episodes, doing a bit of a recap through the Old Testament in a chronological fashion in an attempt to just get a better understanding of what was the culture and context of first century Palestine. So basically, the world and the culture and the people in the time of Jesus's incarnation when he was doing his uh, earthly ministry. And so part of understanding the culture and context of that day was understanding the people, the, the Jews, the Israelites, uh, shared history in context. So we've been going back through and, and kind of just diving in on some of the major elements of the Old Testament history. And the last couple of episodes, we've been honing in on a few fairly major figures in Israel's history. And uh, so the first one that we spent some time on was King Saul. And then, of course, last episode, we spent quite a bit of time looking at the life of King David. So today I wanted to wrap up the what I call the big three uh, by spending some time looking at King Solomon. And King Solomon, in a lot of ways, is symbolically, I think, represents the apex or the, the culmination, the fulfillment of what we would like to call the glory days of Israel as a united nation, as experiencing the fulfillment of the promises of God to Abraham and, of course, through Moses and really all the way through uh, through their history up to that point. God's saying, look, I'm going to give you a land. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you. And this is, and the people uh, really were just looking forward to this, uh, what we often refer to as the season or the land of flowing with milk and honey. So um, as we'll take a little bit of a short look here today, um, Solomon was definitely the uh, the culmination or the, the full embodiment of the, uh, the land flowing with milk and honey. And during his rule as the king over the nation of Israel is when we see those uh, events occur. So uh, we're not going to go kind of like we didn't with Saul and David. We didn't really go super, super into depth on their whole life story. And part of that's just because there's so much recorded about them in the scriptures. And I do encourage you, if you have any questions about it, if you want to dive in deeper, I would definitely encourage you to go back and conduct your own study through the scriptures and, and uh, researching these different characters and their life stories and how they were impacted and influenced and what were their, uh, you know, their major claims to fame and maybe what were their shortcomings and downfalls and all that. Um, so we're going to do the same thing here with Solomon today. We're not going to go a whole lot into the, uh, the, the later story of his life. And the whole reason for that is when we get to the New Testament study, we realize that most of the time that Solomon is referenced, it's really just referring to the the season of abundance and to his wisdom and to his grandeur and to his wealth and his riches and, and kind of all these high points. And so that's going to be a bit of the emphasis on today. But again, there is definitely more to Solomon's story than just that. So if you do want to get the rest of the story, I fully encourage you to get back to the scriptures yourself and uh, dive into that to get the full picture. So today we're just going to kind of look at Solomon's coronation and kind of all the way up through the glory years and some of the major contributions that he's made both to the Israelites and things that would still be applicable and beneficial to us today. So we're going to start up in the text of 1 Kings chapter 2 with the first four verses and then we'll touch a little bit on uh, 
verse 6 as well. And this is at the very end of King David's life and uh, where he is encouraging Solomon, who's going to become his successor to the throne. So starting out in uh, verse 1 here, as David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself to be a man. And I love this. So here's this description of what does it mean to show yourself to be manly, to be a man. Well, that is to keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way, to walk before me in truth and with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And then down in verse six, so act according to your wisdom. And so these are really the some of the last great words from King David to his son Solomon in preparation for taking the throne. And so a little bit of time passes there and Solomon, of course, does get coronated and becomes the king over Israel. And then we jump over into uh, chapter 3, and this really kind of just shows you, I would say, one of the most insightful and the most interesting, uh, well, insights <laughs> into uh, Solomon and his uh, internal life. And we'll, uh, we'll actually read the first 14 verses here of chapter 3. Um, so then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And the people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was not a house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifice sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. So the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for it was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. And Solomon said, You have shown me great loving kindness, both to your servant David my father, according uh, as he walked before you in truth and the righteousness and uprightness of his heart towards you, and you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on the throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father, David. Yet I am but a little child, and I do not know how to go out or to come back in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that, that Solomon had asked this thing, and God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor have you asked for riches, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked instead for discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words, Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, and so that there will not be any among you like in the kings in all of your days. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as did your father David, then I will prolong your days. 
And I love this whole interaction in this text because you get to see, one, that the heart of Solomon was loving the Lord, his God, and he and he personalized it and said, you are my God. And two, I just love how God responds to it and says, you didn't ask for things like Saul asked for. Saul was interested in preserving his own name and his own fortune and fame, um, his own uh, renown, as it were. But instead, you have asked for wisdom. You've asked for discernment, the ability to, to tell good from evil and to to be an effective king, an effective ruler. And so God not only gave him what he asked for, but he also gave him really what we'll see here in the text to come, uh, wealth and renown unlike any other kings ever really in Israel's history. So that's pretty cool. Um, So we jump forward a little bit more over into chapter four, and we'll kind of jump around just a little bit here, but we look at what was the description of the glory days of Israel. What did it really look like at its apex, at its pinnacle, the highest high in the land flowing with milk and honey? And so we'll kind of just look at a few high points here of uh, both Solomon's own accomplishments, but also of just what was the general sense and feeling of the nation of Israel in the days where King Solomon was reigning as king. Uh, So obviously we'll start over here in chapter four, verse one, and it starts out, now King Solomon was king over Israel. So that's, uh, that's set, that sets the stage. Uh, but then we'll jump over into verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. If you remember that from God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis. And they were eating and drinking and rejoicing. And Solomon ruled over the kings from the river to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And jump down just a couple more verses. For he had dominion over everything west of the river from Tishba, even to Gaza, over the things and the kings out west of the river. But he had peace on all sides around about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Isn't that impressive? So uh, definitely one of the marks of a great king is one that is able to uh, maintain peace with all of the surrounding nations. And that's something that was pretty uncommon in Israel's history. And we don't see a whole lot of eras that were marked as being really peaceful. Definitely were a people of war for most of their history. So this was definitely a nice uh, reprieve, a nice uh, changing uh, distinguishing factor of Solomon's rule as king. Um, so what were some of the things that Solomon himself had accomplished? Well, we'll kind of take a quick look here um, in a few of the different verses. So we see that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now that's a lot, especially by ancient standards. Um, he uh, He was not only wealthy, but he obviously, of course, was very wise. Uh, We'll kind of pull down here to verse uh, 32. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and we have many of those recorded. I think uh, Proverbs 1 through 29 are all from from Solomon, as well as he uh, he also wrote or spoke 1,005 different songs or psalms. And uh, we even get to see a small sampling of that in uh, the Psalms as well. So like uh, Psalm 72, for example, you can take a look at that if you'd like to see one of the songs of Solomon or one of the Psalms. It's pretty cool. 
with regard to wisdom in verse 29, now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men. Then Ethan the Ezrahite of Hephman, Kalkol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. Man, how is that for a description? <laughs> to be a man known uh, for being wise, being discerning. In verse uh, 34, men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And uh, we see this manifested in wisdom with his trade agreements. So we look in uh, a lot of chapter 5, uh, he had wisdom in his trade agreements with Hiram, the king of Tyr. Uh, we also th- see that he had wisdom in his trade agreements with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and with the queen of Sheba over in uh, chapter 10. And we'll just take a quick look. Some of this is familiar, but I think it's a really cool passage uh, just to refresh ourselves on if it's been a while since you've gone through First Kings. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, and listen to this, she came to test him with difficult questions. And so she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue, with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. (laughs) And Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the abundance or the attendance of his waiters in their attires, cupbearers, the stairway in which he went up to the house of the Lord, she grew faint of spirit. And she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about the words of your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, (laughs) the half was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity far beyond the report which I had heard. How blessed are your men and how blessed are those who are your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. And blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Remember, this is a a Gentile, a pagan queen coming in and just speaking this great blessing as a result of being blessed by the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, What else did Solomon accomplish? Well, he was able to conduct the entire building project of the temple, which was something that David really wanted to be able to do. Um, uh, Solomon also built many, many cities. He built a fleet of ships. If you look over in uh, chapter 9, verse 26. And he was just honestly, he and also all of Israel in his days were just very, very prosperous. So we'll go back to chapter 10. Uh, Look down here at verse 21. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. (laughs) None was of silver, for it was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. Good grief. Could you imagine that? Silver wasn't even considered valuable because there was so much of it. The king had had at the sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. And once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth, both in riches and in wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. 
they brought every man his gift, articles of silver, gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made the cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price, a chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. By the same means, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and even to the sons or the kings of the Arameans. I love that uh, verse 27. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. Now, if that doesn't just reek of being in a season of prosperity, a land flowing with milk and honey, then I don't know what does. So when you, uh, when you read in the New Testament, when Jesus refers to Solomon in all of his splendor, hopefully this gives you just a little picture, a little glimpse into what that actually meant. Uh, and of course, he talks about even the lilies of the field being adorned more beautifully than King Solomon in all of his splendor. And, uh, and the great contrast that we see that, that, that the gift, the beauty of the Creator is so far beyond everything that can be accomplished by our own uh, standards or by our own accomplishments. And it's, uh, it's not to, to undermine any of these things, of course, but it's instead to uh, really just show the great value and the great love that God has for every bit, every part, every single bit and piece of his creation, from humans to animals to nature to plants, it is all beautiful and precious to him. And so that's a little bit of a glimpse into Solomon. Uh, I love, there's quite a bit actually of his writings that we have access to in the scriptures. Of course, we've got a lot of the Proverbs. We've got some in the Psalms. We've got the Song of Solomon. And honestly, one of my favorite contributions from King Solomon is the book of Ecclesiastes. And part of it I love is just because I think he does such a good job in, in this particular book. He takes up the, uh, the moniker or the title of pastor or preacher. And his goal here is being a man of just really unparalleled wisdom uh, that's ever been known among the sons of men. Uh, he wanted to give, I think, a gift to humanity to say, hey, here's the result. Here's, here's the, the greatest token of wisdom that I could share with you about the nature of life or the meaning of life. And where do we find meaning and fulfillment and significance? And by contrast, what are the pursuits or the things uh, to which we may choose to devote our lives, which ultimately will uh, result or will turn out to be uh, discovered as vanity or uh, meaningless, or the other word that I really love is futility. And so we look um, at just a few sample texts here. Um, Chapter 1. Uh, the first two verses. So it's the the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And I love uh, the word that's used for vanity there is also translated as futility. And so what it is, what is it that is futility? Well, he goes through and actually kind of touches on a lot of the different examples of things that he's 
that he's tested, that he's pursued to try to see if he could find anything that was meaningful or significant or uh, really brought true joy uh, apart, strictly from his own uh, endeavors, from his own efforts, and apart you know, from, uh, from finding fulfillment in God himself. And so he kind of jumps down. We see a few little bits and pieces here uh, down in verse 8. He says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, and nor is the ear filled with hearing. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of earlier things. And I think with that, he's just saying that we as a people, we tend to be very forgetful. And when you don't learn from your mistakes, you're destined or doomed to repeat them. Verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I had set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. And so what does he mean? He says, look, I set out on a task and a project to really scour the earth to see if there is any pursuit, any endeavor of human hands and effort that is going to produce meaning and significance uh, without the direct uh, influence or intervention of the Holy Spirit of God. And so what were some of the examples? Well, we'll start off looking at verses 16 through 18. He says, Behold, I started by saying to myself, I've magnified and increased my wisdom more than all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I also set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realized that that by itself is a striving after the wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Okay, well, that was kind of weird. So the very first places that he tried to find ultimate meaning and significance was through intellectual pursuits. He says, if I can just, if I can just pursue knowledge, if I can just become smarter and wiser, maybe there I will find meaning and significance. And he gets to the end of it and he says, nope, that by itself was insufficient. And then he goes to the opposite extreme. He says, madness and folly and that essentially means, you know, like um, to be simple-minded or to be ignorant. Uh, and it's this idea is like, well, if you know, you hear that expression, ignorance is bliss. So he says, I'm going to pursue ignorance and see if that's really blissful. And he got to the end of that and he says, no, that's, that's also a chasing after the wind. It's, it's nothing. And then he jumps into, uh, into chapter two and he really dives into a lot of examples. Um, so through, throughout the whole chapter, he says, you know, he pursued pleasure. He pursued wine. He pursued folly. He pursued wealth. He pursued relationships, and none of these things by themselves offered fulfillment or offered meaning or satisfaction, uh, in the deep sense at least. And so he gets, and, and honestly, this theme is really what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. He, he just really kind of reinforces and, and rephrases it throughout the entire book. Uh, but I love in uh, chapter three, we actually get to see, okay, so what is the key? Um, he spends a bit of time uh, just highlighting a few of the things, you know, if you can't find ultimate meaning and significance through the pursuit of money or wealth or relationships, um, if you can't find ultimate uh, enjoyment in pleasure, in hedonism, in wine and folly and all these different things, or if you can't find it and discover it specifically in wisdom and knowledge, well, where can you find it? And so in chapter three, he says, there is an appointed time for everything and there's a time for every event under heaven. And we jump down here to uh, verse 10, and he says, I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate 
or I like the other uh, translation of that word as beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning, even until the end. Isn't that significant? And I know that there is nothing better for them to do than rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. And that's really the theme that we see uh, emerging kind of time and time again over the, uh, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And I just love, you know, we get to the very end of it over in chapter 12. And uh, in verse 13, I think he brings just a beautiful conclusion to the whole uh, sermon, the whole message text. And he says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is this, fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. And so that's the great sermon. That's the great takeaway from the man that has had essentially the greatest wisdom among the sons born of men, Uh, the greatest man in terms of wisdom, in terms of wealth and abundance, and really in terms of influence and significance uh, as seen throughout the whole world. Uh, The message that he had was this, fear the Lord and observe his commandments. And fear, of course, is the term of reverence or respect or this, this invitation into a personal relationship with the creator. It's not this uh, fearful, afraid of spiders kind of, uh, you know, word for fear. Uh, And so I just love that that's the takeaway. He says, look, there's so many ways that we can try to pursue meaning and significance in the world, but there's really only one way that we're ever going to find it. And that's because the way that the creator has made us is to have a desire. He set eternity in our heart, and it's only going to be the realization, the communion with eternity itself, with himself, uh, where we're actually going to find that ultimate satisfaction. It's not going to come from something that's temporal. It's not going to come from something that uh, could easily be lost or forgotten or uh, misplaced. And so let that be an encouragement to you. Uh, The great sermon from the King Solomon. And uh, I think those are just wonderful words of wisdom that we can all apply in our own lives. So take that. Finish out this year of 2020 and begin the year 2021 pursuing the thing of ultimate significance. (laughs) And as we've said it before, that is just for a closer walk with Jesus.